Welcome to the 100th episode of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is DBC Pierre. Pierre is a writer, and his most recent book is Big Snake, Little Snake, and is out now through Cheerio Books. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. You're joining me from Cambridgeshire tonight. Do you want to tell us about life over there and also your other place where you live in Ireland? Okay, are we allowed to swear? How much swearing? Which words can we say? You can say any words you like on this podcast. Okay, it's fucking cold Um, (laughs) is, is the only way to put it. But otherwise, beautiful and uh, peaceful and countryside. Basically, um, my place is in Ireland, but I've been spending time here. And it's Ireland is extremely remote where I live, and that's wonderful. This is a little bit more connected. It's still countryside and uh, uh, still takes some time to, to get into London. But uh, it's kind of relatively Manhattan compared to the Irish place. So I've been bouncing between the two. Yeah, your place in Ireland in the Northwest sounds amazing. Uh, it sounds extremely wild and remote. Yeah, it's pretty. It used to be a brothel. It was an illegal brothel and a shabine at one time. And, uh, and hence, kind of the only building in Ireland at the time with ensuite bathrooms and stuff like that. So it's very nifty. It sits by itself, very lonely place on a, uh, a mountainside, forested, um, looking over a valley, a river valley, onto an opposite mountain. And it's very pretty. But it used to take 12 hours door to door to get into central London from there. And writing and publishing sometimes can be quite busy with uh, things to do so um, you know it's not the mo- it's a good place to to escape to but not the most uh, practical place to hang out especially if there's a book coming up do you find you do more of your writing uh in isolation or in cambridge no i can write anywhere i write at night so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. i'm pretty much completely nocturnal and so the uh, you know, it doesn't really matter, and also, I always thought it would be um, a helpful and amazing thing to be isolated and to have beauty, to have nature around. Uh, and it may well be that it is, but in truth, having done that, I'm not sure it actually makes a difference because I could be just as happy. You know, in a hotel room in the middle of Hong Kong as uh, anywhere else. So it kind of didn't make the difference I thought it would. Mm. But it, it's still beautiful and I'm convinced it's very healthy anyway to have trees and, you know, to have uh, nature around, especially in the days that we're living in. It's very nice to have that grounding. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your biography because it kind of reads like a novel. You were born in South Australia. Your father was a World War II pilot flying Lancaster bombers and a noted scientist. You grew up in Mexico, 
You want to book her for your first novel, Vern God Little. Do you want to tell us a bit about your upbringing and a little about your father? That's interesting. No one's ever asked me before about my dad. His name was Keith. Um, you know, the depth of things that he did in his life is still quite mysterious to me. He had an incredible biography. Uh, but as you say, he himself was not South Australian, but um, at the time was a lecturer at the university there at the time that I was born. And I was an accident or a mistake, depending how you look at it. I came quite late in his and my mother's life and uh, unexpectedly. And that's where we happened to be. Uh, so I had... Uh, while he was there at the university, I had probably my first six years of life. Um, we were living in a, a winery in vineyards, basically in a winery homestead. And it was uh, countryside and very free and very pretty. Um, but then he left, I think he's employed by either the Rockefeller Foundation or the Ford Foundation. But he went to a, a United Nations affiliate program that had to do with solving world hunger. And so he was part of the Green Revolution at that time. And um, they built a center in Mexico, just outside Mexico City, for a number of practical reasons to do with agriculture, because they have Due to the altitude, they could get two growing seasons and it made a, a perfect research center for them to research foods and crops, which could be used in the rest of the world. And so um, when I was little, we went to live there and that pretty much was the whole rest of my upbringing. We traveled a lot, but, um, but that was it. He was very happy there. Was his, it was his equal favorite place in the world, along with Tehran. Wow. In Georgia. Yeah. And I never got to Tehran. Of course, now is the wrong time to go because of uh, the regime is unfriendly. Mm -hmm. But uh, he absolutely thought Tehran was the most civilized and beautiful and sophisticated place to live at that time. So I just thought I'd put a good word in there. We get swept up with all the all the modern day media mm. between Russia and China and Iran and these places, and actually, you know, um, I always counterbalance by remembering how much we love actually these places. If you take the regimes away and uh, uh, and uh, all that they mean and all that they've done, so anyway, yeah, Mexico was very happy, and uh, and here we are. Yeah. I want to ask you about that time in Mexico. While you were there, you became fascinated with the Aztecs and their downfall, and you eventually made a documentary about them. Do you want to tell us a bit about that project while you were there? Okay, well, I lost my ass trying to make that the first time around, <laughs> and that that's the story. Of, you know, anyone who looks into my backstory, it was horrible, mm -hmm. you know, semi-criminal, nasty spiral downwards that I got into. Um which you know, I don't need to get into, but, you know, as, as a young man, I set out to make 
the story about where I thought uh, the lost treasure of Moctezuma could be resting. And I decided to do that because I'd found a place where it was worth a look, but it was so beautiful and so extraordinary and so untouched and unusual that it really didn't matter whether any treasure was there or not. Like the telling of the story was going to be so pretty and, and so interesting. Uh, so I embarked on that, um, uh, but completely lost my ass. Mm. And, uh, you know, the story was that, of course, the just to recap, the story up to now with the Aztecs is that they they'd only been in power there for uh, three centuries or so, or even less, two centuries um, since the since Mexico City was declared, and um, they had, due to all their magicians and uh, all their astrologers that were in the royal court, uh, they had a vision that they would soon be approached by bearded men from the east who came across the sea on castles. And they even predicted the date, the time. And sure enough, this is when Hernando Cortes came from Cuba on galleons, these massive boats with his men. And uh, they began the conquest of Mexico. And due to all the superstition, uh, which the Aztec uh, king had received, and uh, due to all the, the warnings from his warlocks, he was very indecisive and didn't quite know what to do about this. And um, there was this very curious dance between the Spaniards and the Aztecs, which went on for a couple of years, 18 months, a couple of years before the Spaniards eventually came to Mexico City. And when they got there, they were lodged as honored guests in the palace, the palace of Moctezuma's father. And in the building next door, when they investigated, I think they even bashed a hole through the wall. Next door, they found an immense hoard of treasure, jewels and gold, uh, just something unheard of. And they made a note of it. And when the action started, when they started taking the city by force, they made a note to go back and, and rescue that. But when the dust settled and all the fighting was done, they went back and the treasure disappeared. Um, now, it happened that these magical people around the king, um, many of them were Otomi, which is uh, a culture uh, of uh, central and coastal Mexico, very old culture. And they're renowned even today for practicing, practicing magic. And I had discovered in 1978 a place which was discovered or I mean, had already been written about, but it was very remote 
and quite difficult to get to and relatively unspoiled uh, in the Sierra Madre. And of course, it was still full of Otomi wizards and warlocks and witches. And there are known to be very extensive cave systems there, some which could run 20 kilometers or more uh, under these limestone mountains. And there was a legend among the people, many of whom still didn't speak Spanish at the time. Um, there was a legend that uh, that the king um, and his people had taken the treasure down there. And indeed, despite not speaking Spanish, the local warlocks had as one of their deities, I actually have the artwork somewhere, um, they had uh, Lord Moctezuma, the Aztec king. And that's very unusual given how remote they were from the city. And also the Otomi before that were known to be a coastal people and here they were suddenly in this weird valley full of caves and all of this is what kind of added up and made me think, wow, it's so picturesque and, and such a, a resonant story that it would be great to just film the journey. And that's what I set out to do at that time. Amazing story. You, you did go back, didn't you, like later on and try and go back I to went, that place? Yeah, I went uh, many times, many, many times and had all kinds of adventures down there. Now, the place has changed. It's grown up a little bit. It's become a bit more connected. And that extremely rustic era has kind of gone. But, you know, it remains unusual and remote and uh, still has its warlocks. And what happened with the actual film, which uh, Channel 4 made, is that a, a very bright developer of projects saw that I'd lost my butt in the first instance trying to make that film. And he said, well, never mind the treasure so much, but what about we make a film about what led you to think you would even make that film? And that's what took us back there to look firstly at the, at the very, very extraordinary circumstances of the fall of the Aztec Empire. Uh, but then to finally go to this village and uh, and see if uh, see if the legend was still going about the treasure. You know. mm. I want to ask you about your time in Mexico when it came to an end. And there's a story about you trying to drive a sports car uh, into Mexico from the US. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh God! <laughs> well, well, you know, it's just the time I was. 19 and at the time Mexico had uh, it wasn't a member of NAFTA of the free trade agreement and so it, it, it was very protective of its industries so you couldn't import stuff down there and Mexico is a big big country and even then it, had, it was fully supplied with electronics and cars and all the things you'd want in a modern country but you could only get the basic models of stuff. And if you wanted anything exotic, um, you had to go to the States, but you couldn't import it uh, unless you 
you know, jumped through hoops and, and paid really outrageous taxes and everything. So um, I thought I would be able to bring one. I kind of, I hadn't taken into, into account all of that. Um, and I thought I would be able to, uh, to bring one in. And I drove it from Houston down to the border. Uh, and there in the middle of the night at the border, we discovered that you couldn't bring it in. But I was in a, a position where I could neither retreat from the border and go back to the States, nor could I enter Mexico with this thing. And so the upshot, the upshot of that whole night was that uh, they cancelled my permanent residency in Mexico, uh, although I, I did get to keep the car. But things were a little bit different back then. It was, it was, the border was very interesting. I think even today, they still have two borders. And so if you get through the first one, 26 kilometers further down the track, there's another one. And uh, back at that time, things were a bit more, um, a bit more corrupt in the country. And so generally you could buy your way across one border. But of course, they would alert the people at the next border. And the, it used to be quite difficult sometimes, depending what you were bringing down um, to get into the country. Anyway, yeah, the upshot of that adventure was that uh, I lost my residency and it prompted me to to uh, eventually leave Mexico and come and seek my fortunes elsewhere. Yeah, well, eventually your mum moved to Spain, didn't she, after the peso collapsed and you ended up in Australia, right? Um, well, I ended up in Spain for a while and um, uh, Australia for a, a little while I did go and, and test it as an adult um, also Denmark for a while and um, here the UK so I moved around a bit and, and didn't really stop anywhere long enough to capitalize or start any kind of meaningful career which is what I should have been doing according to but all the formats that we hear um, in the media. So, yeah, it was peripatetic. Mm -hmm. Perfect use of that word. Mm. And um, while I had some fun, it didn't, didn't particularly lead anywhere productive, you know. I was a bit, a bit uh, rootless. Well, living on the peripheries of life, at what point did you make it into writing? Uh, only, only after I'd exhausted every other option. Mm. It's an act of desperation. And um, in the end, I'd been an artist. I'd been a designer before that. Obviously, I'd tried to be a filmmaker. I'd been a photographer. And I'd had some limited success with these things. I was making a, some kind of a, a, a living, at least enough to get me from one country to the next country um, but writing literally came after you know when I was poor enough that I could not afford materials to paint and draw and uh, and yet was full increasingly full of things that I felt had to be said or that I wanted to say 
and I was loaned a laptop. And uh, with that, was able to dive into writing. I never thought I would be a writer because I can't hold a pen correctly. Or I never learned. I don't know what happened. But if you look at the way I hold a pen, it's um, it's good for drawing, but it's kind of weird. It's the same as same way you'd hold chopsticks. Mm. And it means that while there is good control there for drawing, it's absolutely hopeless for writing any long distances. And I was hopeless at school if it was going to be a written work that needed pages of work. A, it was painful. I would get cramps in my hand. But also the way it is, although I'm right-handed, um, just the style of it meant that I would drag my hand across the ink every line and the mm -hmm. thing would just end up being an illegible smudge. So it was difficult. And for that reason, although I love language and I always love reading and I have imagination, I never thought writing would be for me. And it was simply that, that I hadn't foreseen an easier way than than doing it by hand. Um, and even typewriters, you know, I, I would type with one finger mm. and I couldn't really see that working. So it was only, only really uh, when there was access to a laptop and it made it easier. And I discovered that uh, it was worth a shot. And I do love, you can paint with words, you can paint colors just as much as... Uh, in a painting and you might notice anyone will notice the way I write is often not completely to the point although I'm trying now to be much more about the meaning but if you see my writing and think wow that's a little bit uh, florid it is simply because I'm trying to get the color I'm less interested in the meaning as in the, the flavor of the time and the feeling mm. And so, you know, <clears throat> I found that I was able to do that just as well. And uh, it was a breakthrough. It was great. It was great to know. I didn't think I would be published. But my first book, um, after a certain point, I decided it was worth finishing anyway and giving it a shot. Wow. Well, let's talk about that. Because uh, Vernon Godlittle, it came out in 2004, won the Man Booker. And you've gone on to write several other novels and nonfiction. You've described the first three books as a loose trilogy. You've got Lights Out in Wonderland, uh, which is a particular favourite of mine. Um, it includes a great recipe for a giant panda and confit koala leg. And There is a great recipe for panda. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's I've true. tried it. It's brilliant. There's, there's a feast that happens in the Templehof airport. Uh, do you want to tell us about those first three books and... How you felt about that unbelievable success of Vernon God Little? Well, that's just, that's lucky. And um, I never quite recovered. You never quite recover. There's no, there's no way to completely absorb uh, such uh, explosive events. I'm extremely... You know, extremely uh, chuffed and 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 grateful that it should fall to that book. Uh, so it's a great thing, but it's it's hard to fully to be able to stand back from it enough to to really take it in. So I've just carried on mm. and uh, 
grateful to have the job of, of being able to write, you know. But they were about, think about this millennium. I mean, things are really hotting up now. And uh, in certainly in my lifetime, I haven't, haven't seen things anywhere close to this, uh, to, the, to the precipice that, that we're on now. And at the time that I wrote Vernon, that first novel was just around the turn of the millennium. And you could see certain things coming on the horizon. So certain things really uh, took my attention. And that first book, Vernon God Little, was about the disturbing but quite new phenomena of um, uh, high school gun incidents. Mm. And it had to be set in America for no other reason than that's where they were beginning to happen now. We really sadly, we do see them occasionally in other places. But it was essentially an American novel about that, about you know, just thinking from the point of view also of the children around. It's like, what the hell, you know, what kind of fucking life is this? Uh, was one of uh, Vernon's lines in that book. It just seemed that there was some time in, in, in the previous decade or decades, whether it was neoliberal economics, <clears throat> you know, whether it was some other fundamental changes in, uh, in society and in the way we relate to each other, at some point it seemed to me that we had untied the shoelaces of society and we were running around just waiting to trip and fall. Uh, and it was just a question of which direction we were going to fall in. It was, it was quite an alarming time. And so the trilogy, which is a loose trilogy, I say trilogy because originally Vernon was going to be three books, mm. and I drafted three books. So that first book that came out is just the first one, and then there was going to be another one, which took an opposite view, took a, a conservative view where, in fact, he was the villain mm. and society was was the good guy. And then there was going to be a third one which tried to match um, those two ideas and find a balance down the middle. And actually, in the third one, he was going to become president of the USA. Mm. <clears throat> but we never got to that. And um, the, instead, I wrote two completely different books. But all of them basically we're just fueled by a uh, the uneasy sense of the approaching century mm. and it had its hallmarks uh, really from the very first days of the millennium you could see that things were being undone and uh, certain certain of the the contexts which I believe keep us straight and keep us bound together um, in a, with a common sense uh, were being undone. And indeed, I think over the course of writing those things in the background, they have been undone to where now uh, we're in a place where there is, in our culture anyway, in affluent cultures, um, We've lost common sense, and we're very close now to 
each of us being in a subculture, uh, uh, in a tribal subculture. And no matter what, whatever feeling or opinion we have for the past or for the future, there's almost guaranteed to be an equal or greater number of people, not only with a differing view, but with an opposite view. And that includes if you feel you're doing well, it includes if you're a charitable and intelligent and well-meaning person, there will be a force now uh, which is arrayed against specifically those things uh, and which holds them to be false. And that's very interesting and, and really hasn't happened uh, before that I can see. It happens in very localized situations in history, none of which seem to end well. Mm. But now we have it widespread. So really, the trilogy was uh, born from that unease and hence had to be uh, three comedies, essentially, because it's the only way to treat really, really uh, dark unease. I, I can't think of a way. Obviously, these subjects, if you really want to uh, to look at them with a tragic viewpoint, then you do them in nonfiction and just lay out the facts mm. such as they are. But at the time, you know, comedy was the way forward and I'm just trying to find, find the love and the hope in, in different situations that we're facing. Mm. I think that leads on nicely to um, Meanwhile in Dopamine City because I feel that's also really playing on this unease of society at the moment and the, the rise of the internet and the rise of surveillance state and stuff like that. Um, yeah. can, you, can you tell us a bit about the setup of that book and I guess the, the world it's taking place in? Yeah, the setup, do you know what? I imagined it backwards. I wasn't uh, I wasn't quite sure when I set out um, exactly where this would go or, or how it would turn out in its detail, but I had an image, and it's the image, the last image in the book, so I can't really give it away, but, you know, it was like an anime. It was like a manga, mm. a manga picture uh, which I applied to the future and over time the book really is just uh, how a character and his family got to that point in time and I have to say there's nothing inherently inherently sinister about ending up you know being you know a cosplayer manga character mm. in some completely surreal future. But I wanted to I wanted to use the book as a distance measuring device and take because all of the uh, all of the behaviors and and the things which were held to be good across the last century and indeed across many centuries before it have now shifted and that's very unusual and being human beings we very quickly forget and normalize a new condition mm. so that within a generation it's like you know what used to be called good is now a completely alien and foreign uh, thing so i wanted to make a distance measuring device 
about this guy's journey and show the old values. It's about a, just a regular guy. He works in the sewers. He's a single parent. He's raising some kids, and he's trying to live in the new world. Uh, but I wanted his values to be tethered to the 20th century, if you like, and to what we used to think was was good. Mm-hmm. And then just watch him trying to carry them through into the future and to see how how successful he was with that. So he was like a flag in the sand, just in case down the track um, anyone wondered how things used to be thought of. Obviously, the, every other book will have that in, but I wanted to make the journey. I wanted to show them the values being challenged one by one mm-hmm. and how they were shifting. Also in a comedic way, because at the end of the day, for me, as human beings, apart from anything potentially glorious that we can do and be, uh, we are patently absurd and whimsical and and charming in many cases. And that interests me very much. I think we give ourselves a much harder time than we need to as a species and that uh, we'd be much better off chilling out and taking mm-hmm. ourselves slightly less seriously. <laughs> so he was the vehicle for that. And it was kind of the last look. I mean, I now truly believe, although it was said in the 1980s that satire is dead, I now really think uh, it is. It, it, it will be very different. Um, trying to to use uh, really high irony or satire, um, simply because it would the the group who might see it would now be a, an elite, and it's becoming a smaller and smaller elite mm. uh, and a niche. And so, this book was kind of my my goodbye to to that possibility. And now I'm, you know, I'm, I have to do different things. Yes, I was talking to a writer yesterday, and he had a book basically cancelled because of sensitivity readers, because he used the word "fat" in his book. And um, used the word I, "fat," okay. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like that's that's kind of the almost the way society's going is that you can't get away with satire anymore because somebody will take offence to it, or somebody will really think that's what you're saying, and it's almost impossible to to do work like that, I think, in this environment. Well, it is, unfortunately. Hell, you know, I mean, God, you know, fat would be the most innocent word in any of my books. Mm. Um, but, of course, they're written before that time, you know, mm. uh, before the time. And it's, you know, it's... Uh, um, it's an unusual position because the uh, people are reacting to some things uh, as though those things are directed at them or mm. about them. And uh, that indeed is going to make it unusual and, and, and difficult in that everything will be a, a bad memory for someone. Mm. If I wrote a book about kittens, there will be someone who lost a kitten tragically and that will, that's going to, hit their triggers and etc so well we see i can't be mindful of that particularly um 
because there are still things to say and etc. But yeah, in terms of in terms of satire, in terms of absolutely ripping the shit out of a subject and mm. and smearing it somewhere just for the for the glee of it, uh, then for the time being, those days are gone, except for a very uh, a niche group of folk, I guess. Yeah. Mm. All right. Let's talk about Big Snake, Little Snake. It's a non-fiction book about risk and luck and fate and a parrot in the West Indies. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that book and how it got started? Okay, that was my lockdown project. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, Cheerio is a fabulous little new publisher. Mm. And they do artistic, uh, creative works. They also are making films. And uh, they came along and said, listen, they're very partly funded and influenced by the estate of the painter Francis Bacon, uh, who was a favourite of mine. Mm. And so the only brief was that maybe maybe I had a, a little book in me about something that would have tickled Francis Bacon. And one of the things he liked was gambling. He was he was a, a really gleeful gambler, and it seems he didn't particularly care if he lost or won. He just wanted to to be in the game. And so uh, I said, "Perfect." Lockdown was just beginning in 2020. I thought this is absolutely bang on because I can have a splash around in that. And the more I looked at the question of gambling, I've got a few gambling stories, um, although I'm not a gambler and I'm not today a gambler and it was because I looked at my gambling stories from the past and I started thinking you know the really big gambles and the stuff that we all face actually happens in everyday life and it happens with our decisions it's like never mind the poker table never mind the casino the gambling that is really really going to change our lives and define us is the decision that we make today about what we're going to do next. And it drew me to thinking that the wonderful world of mathematics, as it applies to the, the gaming table, applies equally to all the shit we get up to in life. And I became fascinated with that, and it shifted, shifted my thinking on the book. And so Big Snake, Little Snake um, is so named after a time I lived in the wonderful twin island republic of Trinidad and Tobago. And on these amazing islands, I felt a completely different law of physics, if you like. There, was, there seemed to be a different mathematics in operation. Luck was a little bit different there. Different things happened there. Um, I don't know, the, the temperature of both coincidence and your feeling, your feeling as to the possibility of coincidences and good and bad outcomes was different. Something else was in operation. And um, so the book ended up being about the mathematics of every day and about starting to realize that you know what? We talk about luck. We we have this blinkered view 
when we throw a dice, um, when we throw a die or, or we draw a card from a deck, that the odds governing the outcome begin at that moment. And we forget that we live in a universe whose visible portion, so far as we can now tell, is about 93 billion light years across, contains two trillion galaxies, roughly, which can have hundreds of billions of planets and stars and objects in them. And we've been observing them for a century or so. We've seen many, many, many places. We've named and investigated many places deep, 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 deep out there in space. And absolutely none of them is building sofas or brewing coffee or seeming to show any sign of life whatsoever. And so it occurred to me writing this book that our odds surely must begin with the almost impossible possibility that we could exist at all. So here we are, we're conceived on a planet with 9 million species of creatures. The odds, first of all, of us being born a human, the odds, first of all, of being existing in any life form at all, must be octillions to one, if you look at the universe. Secondly, the odds of being born a human being and not a snake or a cat, 9 million to one. Then we survive our childhood. We survive all the little gambles of the day, crossing the road, all these things, until finally we're sat at a gaming table and we draw a card. And I ended up exploring the argument in the book that surely our odds began back at the beginning of the universe and not at the moment that we drew that card. And that actually, if you look at things in a certain in a certain way, we're incredibly lucky. We're much luckier than we think. It's not to say that necessarily we can influence uh, the the dice or the cards that we draw, but it also wonders if we're not in some way mm. responsible. Um, we live in this incredible bagatelle of of spinning odds every second of the day and we suddenly in isolation take one and we win or lose according to what happens but in fact the bagatelle is never ending around us and so the book ended up being an exploration of our relationship to chance and luck and people come up to me since then hasn't been out very long but people who read it come up oh my god we can't really talk about this but the other day you know I, I thought about this person and I hadn't thought about them in 20 years. And just after that, the phone rang and it was them and all these things, which actually happen to us every day, these extraordinary coincidences where we start humming a tune we haven't thought of in 20 years. And then it comes on the radio and these things happen much more frequently than, than the mass of probability should allow. So the book is also an argument against the way we think of probability. Mm. And it ends by asking uh, the question, you know, can we not actually guide this? Can we not manage this better? Probabilities are much better than we think in many respects. 
But we live in a time where you know, the media is feeding us odds and statistics all day long. About one in five people who eat white bread and then two out of three people who eat bacon and one in four people who do this and that. And blah, 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 blah. If you listen to the, the, um, to the life expectancies uh, of people under certain conditions, um, we should all have been dead at birth. And then I started looking at some of the very basic statistics that are fed to us, like uh, it, just that, life expectancy. And, you know, if you take out infant mortality, my lifespan is the same or slightly worse than it would have been for my class of character in ancient Greece. Mm. And we, we grow up with this idea that everyone died at 30 last century, because they were so poor and fucked up. And actually, no, people were just as long-lived in previous centuries. What happened is our statistics are skewed by uh, the loss of infants. And we very thankfully have been able to save many more of our infants, etc. So is, by the end of that book, anyway, I realized that we live in this cage which really holds us back. And it's a cage of ideas about what the odds are, you know, if we take this up or if we do that, things are going to go badly because, you know, five out of 10 people have this experience. You go, well, first of all, who are those people? When did they have that? I saw a statistic, for instance, 50% of all people in our culture, according to, to one uh, commentator, will suffer some form of mental illness in their lifetime. And you go, okay, fair enough. But then, so I'm standing next to you, Ben. One of us, according to that, will suffer mental illness in our lifetime. My problem was, we will not know if that's true until one of us becomes mentally ill mm. or one of us is dead or both of us are dead. And only when we're dead, they can say, okay, one of them did get mental illness or they didn't get mental illness or they both didn't, which mm. means there are two people elsewhere that are going to get it according to that statistic. And I just, the process of writing that book was a deconstruction of all the bullshit that we've come, the pseudoscientific lifestyle that we have about how things work in the universe. And it just seemed to me, uh, by the end of the book, that it was crap. And I felt much luckier when I finished the book than when I began the book, simply for that. Just for exploring mm -hmm. the simple things that we deal with every day and going, really, and looking a bit deeper into it. So I think about that statistic, you know, what does that actually mean? It's irrelevant. It's pointless. And uh, so that was my lockdown. Lockdown was perfect for it because, again, we were dealing with, you know, you know, one in 10 people is going to die from this disease. And heaven forbid, many of them did. And, and it's tragic. And I don't know what the stats are in the end, but it was a perfect time to start thinking about how we, how we think about our luck. And I also decided that the way we think about our luck influences our luck greatly mm -hmm. in the same way that you know, we will not successfully jump over the ravine if we don't think we can. Mm. We're much more likely to be able to do it if we feel we can. 
And so to be burdened down by all these notions of what's going to kill us or, or harm us, it can only be making us unlucky, generally speaking. So, yeah, that was that was my lockdown. How was yours? My lockdown was shit. Um, but, yeah, but... <laughs> but it's all good. Uh, I was, was in the good. countryside going, no, it's all <laughs> bullshit. It's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> having well, my yeah. having, actually having my moment of mental illness. So mm. it means you're safe for the rest of your life. Perfect. Um, yes, that stat may not work. Yes, no, we were stuck in Melbourne for a fair portion of it. Um, having the fucking oh, parks oh, yeah. closed. Oh my god, you're in Melbourne. They had they really had the toughest lockdown ever. Yeah. We felt for you. We felt for you. Well, we didn't realize until, until uh, Novak Djokovic got out mm, there. Yeah. Um, and it was suddenly like, God, oh, we're quite right. You've been through hell there. And suddenly there was that whole conflagration. Mm. Yes. Well, strangely, the Premier in charge at that time was re elected in the landslide earlier or late last year. So, yes, I think Melbourne has a bit of Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Well, God bless. Thank God we're back to some kind of normal. Really. That's right. Yes. Yes, Australia's just rolled out uh, your fifth vaccine, if you want to have that, which is great, isn't what it? What is it? They're up to their fifth vaccine here. So oh, you're on the fifth vaccine now. Wow. Yeah, you can get a fifth vaccine if you want to. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty handy. And it does actually increase the speed of your Wi-Fi. <laughs> Helps to find uh, singles in your area. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, unfortunately, it all backs up to the uh, to the cloud computer in the sky, which is in a Chinese balloon. So, yeah, which is good. <laughs> Getting back to Big Snake, Little Snake, I feel like you're tugging on this like secret thread of the universe in this book because the way you've kind of set this up, like I feel like society is just enmeshing us in this. I guess idea that we are so scared of taking a risk. And I think you're really pulling that thread beautifully in this book. Well, thank you. And thanks for reading it. And you know what? It's not to say, and I, I have to be firm about this, it is not to say that our diet of statistics and all these mathematics, which I now feel are wrong, uh, is any kind of conspiracy. Um on the basis that, A, people are too dumb, generally speaking, to operate a conspiracy for very long, <laughs> um, as in human beings. Uh, and, B, these are completely naturally occurring. What happens is, you know, it's profitable at the moment and advantageous, and it gives you know, news media something extra to panic about. And, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's just what, what's happening. But also, we, you know, we got these ideas as kids about probability. We were much less fearful, you know, when I was a little kid about our chances of getting hurt. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the health and safety milieu, while it's fabulous and we should not lose more than one, one person more than we have to in life, of course, um, but it has given the rest of us this this overarching sense of uh, of fear and doom. And, uh, you know, it's unnecessary for a good life and for us to be lucky. Let's be lucky. Mm. I want to 
mentioned the parrot briefly that serves as kind of the MacGuffin in this book because you were going to, I guess, do a film project about this parrot at some point. (laughs) So at what point did you, I guess, end up deciding that that was a good point to centre this book around in a way? Well, I had to pick something. Uh, The truth is I was there, I was working in advertising, basically, Mm -hmm. um, and doing design and making commercial films and stuff. And it was fabulous, and it meant there were lots and lots of jobs. So uh, that that was the story. But it couldn't it couldn't be a book about you know a career or about all of those jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I thought pick pick the representative one and which the parrot job did run over a period of months. And uh, pick the one, but also pick one which adds to this, just adds another ingredient to the pot of uh, luck stories. Um, Because we had, that was a real, um, almost a quantum phenomenon, that parrot. Mm. It It was good luck, bad luck, good luck, bad luck, good luck, bad luck, the whole story. And there was even more. I kind of allude to in the book. The story even got weirder later, and we went to Venezuela to to edit the the film about the parrot, and things got really weird there. And we're you know involved in in between gunfights and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, the parrot was just a motif. I did many other great jobs there and uh, uh, and had a lot of fun. But it's it suited it suited the work in that. It had a, a real strong sense of bringing its own luck. Mm. And it also made me remember that I've been unlucky twice before with parrots mm. and I should not touch any more parrots in future. <laughs> Disgusted. I got to the end of this, but I was almost in tears finally going, fuck, this is the third parrot. And it didn't occur to me until then. I had one parrot tragedy when I was a kid and then I had another parrot tragedy. Uh, and I don't know what it is. I've had other wonderful animals around, dogs and, and cats and all kinds. Of, I had a raccoon once and mm-hmm. all these creatures, but for some reason, the parrots, I'm just a parrot Jonah. And uh, maybe it was it was meant to be that I had to write about it and discover for the safety of parrots everywhere. I want to ask you about some of your gateway books. What were some of the books that drew you into the world of literature and writing? The stuff I loved, um, I loved reading from a young age and as soon as I could figure books out, um, I really got swept away with them. So uh, that, that was a lucky thing. The stuff that once we get away from children's books, um, the stuff that impressed me probably started with a massive copy of Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall, which I found too young. I must have been about 12. Uh, Much too young, but I had a thing. I was a brochure pincher when I was a kid. Uh, You couldn't take me anywhere near travel agent or any of these businesses because I would steal piles of brochures. I loved publications. I loved the the smell of them, the feel of them. I loved the duplication 
I loved having more than one copy of something. I just love the pub, the published word and published pictures and stuff. Uh, and I've always had that. I was a kid who was always playing around with little printing kits and stapling papers together to make little publications and that. Um, and so as an upshot of that, of course, I love bookshops. And Australia, thankfully, you know, in, in the Western world is the most glorious book uh, country, in my view, in that, you know, the news agents, the bookshops in Australia are just gorgeous, you know, triple canopy, rainforests, compared to what has happened in, in many other places. Uh, and so it wasn't actually in Australia. I think it was in UK when I was a kid that I found outside a newsagent or a bookshop, they had a bargain bucket. You know, those things were just like, you know, 40 cents, take your pick. And because I was such a greedy fucker, there was in the middle of that, this massive biblical sized hardback volume of evil and war. And it had decline and fall. And it had a couple of other novels in it too, um, which I can't remember, but decline and fall. I eventually, I bought the books. I loved the object and, and it was great value for that 40 P. Uh, and, but after lugging around for a while, I thought I'd best have a look at it and God, it was above me culturally, but I stuck with it and discovered my, my first sense of somebody writing about how things really worked in the world. Mm. And if you read that book, it's these characters in this situation. Um, the situation collapses. But then, by coincidence, they bump into each other in the next situation as well. And they're all kind of interconnected like, like planets in orbit throughout their lives in this book. And that touched me very, very deeply and, and gave me a sense that there was my first leg up onto you know, adult literature. Uh, and from there to Kerouac on the road, in which um, I found, still to this day, some of the finest sketched, spontaneous writing uh, about Mexico, apart from anything else, where he just nailed something in a simple phrase. And that super impressed me. And also, you know, I was a pretty naive kid, and I thought books have to be very purposeful. I thought they... They had to be like school books and be very didactic and have all kind of morals in them. So I was absolutely overjoyed to find books that didn't need to say what everyone else was saying. And they didn't, they didn't need to have a meaning or a moral to them. They could be anything at all. And uh, certainly Kerouac gave that to me and the rest of his works then, Big Sur, Dharma Bums. Um, where obviously also he was purging himself of, of a lot of uh, autobiographical detail. Um, I read Gore Vidal for by accidental uh, for accidental reasons. I don't know where I came upon that, but I started reading Gore Vidal, so I got a bit of the American um, uh, liberal thinking there. 
and also he was the first one. I read his book called Duluth, which was a surrealist kind of comedy and very unusual, etc. But that brought me on board with surrealism and and the relationship of surrealism to real life and also uh, symbolism, how symbolic our life is. And, you know, I started getting, I think, being able to perceive some layers of uh, deeper things in everything that we did. Bear in mind, in Mexico City, I was living in a neighborhood uh, where for some time uh, Luis Buñuel, the filmmaker, was a neighbor. Mm. And Gustavo Alatriste was a neighbor, his uh, producer. Um, the Garcia Marquez boys were at school. And there was a big Latin American component to the things I was reading, particularly mm. because we were much more in the in the aura of the USA than we were uh, within the, the, the catchment of uh, Britain. Uh, and so things headed there, but they had a really strong relationship with the surreal and with with symbolism and with magical realism at the time as well. Um, and so um, these things all took a lot of the stuff that I read in Spanish would have been very influential. <clears throat> Do you still read a lot of stuff in Spanish? I, read, I try and read one and one, yeah. Do one English, one Spanish, yeah. Amazing. When I can, yeah, it's good. It's so much, and I would much prefer it as a as an operating language. Mm. I love English because blunt, there's blunt Saxon uh, words. I mean, Eng English is a bit of a two by four plank, uh, whereas um, Spanish is much more of a, a filigree, much more of a rococo mm. uh, laurel arrangement, and uh, you can paint better with it. I like them both, but Spanish is a joy for that, and it uh, can be a little bit more long-winded, but you paint tones of colours. And as a result, I believe, and also the same is true of French um, and Portuguese and Italian, as a result of the Romance languages, uh, the cultures themselves are more open to and more, uh, more au fait with romance, in their everyday life. Mm. And I think those things, the stereotypes that we celebrate about these places will be born. I don't know which came first, the language or the people, but it's within the language that the possibility of these things can happen. And a romantic life is a beautiful life. You, you can see magic in many more, uh, in many more details than you can in English, simply because our words are blunt enough that, you know, it feels kind of stupid even talking about, you know, using words like joy and glee and these things. You know, you have to be an intellectual. You can't really do that down the pub at Footscray, you know what I mean, without getting your head kicked in. And uh, so, yeah, between the two of them, I can, I'm, I'm allowed to, to be more romantic in uh, – uh, in a foreign language than than I am in English, mm. that's for sure. Speaking of what you're reading, uh, do you want to tell us what books you've recently enjoyed, or you're currently reading, or you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm 
I'm currently reading, in case I missed something, uh, Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, mm-hmm. um, simply because all these folks behind the administrations of the United States back in the 60s and 70s used to hang out with her, Henry Kissinger and Alan Greenspan and all these guys. Um, and they were involved in such uh, a lurid part of modern history and were such players in that it intrigued me that she and her work should be so influential. Mm. And I wanted to go back and see now, now that that period is well and truly behind us and its values are well and truly gone, I wanted to go and see to what extent she influenced that. Now, it's very much basically a, a, in its moral, it's a, a free market uh, argument. But put that aside, um, she's an extraordinary writer. And so I'm enjoying it. It's about 1,100 pages long, so mm. I'm trying to crack on and get to the, to the next thing. Um, prior to that, the most beautiful thing that I read in translation, because I think the original is in Hungarian, is uh, Miklos Banfi and the Transylvania Trilogy. Yeah. And it's a wonderful, um, a wonderful and detailed autobiographical look, written as novels, but written by account about um, the aristocracy and the goings on of the aristocracy in Transylvania in the very last days of the Austro Hungarian Empire. Mm. And that was an awful lot of fun just before modernism but incredibly well written beautifully expressed and i'm looking forward to and it's already out here on the desk looking forward to reading a book called gracie's under by a newfoundland newfoundland author called uh, farley moat and that is a book about tugboats in the north atlantic in winter salvage boats and simply because I love the sea, I love, uh, I don't know, the sea always sends a shiver up, you know, deep, big seas and stuff. And it's rare that you can find a, a really good marine book, a maritime book, which has no greater story in it except the survival of a tugboat in the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be my fun reads, you know. That's going to be my, my pudding, if you like. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with DBC Pierre. Are you worried about Chinese surveillance balloons collecting all of your data and listening to all of your conversations? Why don't you sign up for TikTok? It's just like having a Chinese surveillance balloon in your pants. Use promo code BTZ and you'll get a free welcome message from Xi Jinping. A simple hello would do. Thank you very much. Sign up today. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Pierre's Desert Island Books. Desert Island Books, Papillon by 
Maurice Charrier. And that was the book that actually led me to go to Trinidad. Mm. Just to recap, uh, those who haven't seen it, this was uh, a book written by an ex-prisoner from Devil's Island in the Caribbean. And who was a Frenchman who felt he was wrongly convicted of a murder and he was transported in the 20th century to serve his time on Devil's Island. And they made a film actually with Steve McQueen and Steve McQueen was was Papillon in that. This was an amazing, it's a, a, a first person account of his time across a period of years on these islands. But it's so vibrantly written. And of course the places are so exotic. You know, he's between Suriname and Guyana and on these islands and then Trinidad and Venezuela and the coast up around there in Central America uh, is just such an exotic um, tableau. And basically he set out to escape and escape and escape and escape. And he does and he does and he does, but he keeps getting recaptured and put back and put back. These extraordinary adventures towards freedom um, made this a book I, I first picked up when I was in deep shit myself and and feeling kind of hopeless. And I clung to this book. It's the book I've read the most. I've read it over and over and over just because he, even if he's locked in a pit with rats and snakes and spiders, he's doing what he must do to stay alive because he's going to escape and he's going to be free. And mm-hmm. It's an incredible story of human will. Um, my next book, just my reality check book, uh, would probably be um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay, which is just a great compendium of how fucking stupid we can be when we come together as a mob. Mm. And it tells the story of all the great scams and illusions of, of history, um, like tulip mania, when single tulip bulbs were selling for more than palaces and castles and uh, all these these great stories about the madness of crowds, which is also incredibly relevant right now because we're seeing exactly the same phenomena in um, social media and how you know, whole swathes of people can run off with an idea mm. um, and uh, give it value. Which is just a human function. It's not to not to lay blame anywhere, but it's a, a hell of a fun read for that, and uh, and to keep us humble as a species. Um, I will probably take Leela by Robert M. Percy, mm-hmm. which was his much later sequel to. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, it's a little bit, I, I haven't read it too recently. You know, it could come with a trigger warning for the modern day in the sense that it's him philosophizing about some really great questions. Uh, but during a journey down a river on a boat with a sex worker who he met 
and I cannot vouch for how well he <laughs> how well he speaks of the sex worker or, or, or treats her. Um, but there were some damn good ideas in there, which also are, are very relevant today. And you know what? For fun, because it's a desert island, and of course I want to be rescued off the island, but not too quickly. I would take the entire seven volumes of uh, the um, the life of uh, Jacques Casanova. <laughs> And there is a bureau. I've got it right here. I'm going to bring you with me. I'm just going to see. Oh, it's uh, Arthur Machen. The translator from the French was Arthur Machen. I can't see it from here, but it is anyway. You'll find Arthur Machen. There's a, a Victorian translation, uh, which is superb. And because, of course, the book's written grammatically, it's first person, it uh, starts with. Casanova entering the convent school as a young boy and ends with a postscript about how he ended his days, uh, I think well into his 90s, just to speak about life expectancy again, in the 1700s. But it's the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day-to-day, moment-to-moment um, depiction of life in the 18th century, just extraordinary. Every anecdote he tells you, what he paid for this, how much change he got back, what he, the, the language that was used is just verbatim. And I do think it's held by historians as one of the best records we have of day-to-day life in the 1700s. Uh, but put aside his adventures, um, There's certain things in that work that suggest to me that the end of that century, in terms of human manners in the West, uh, was close to a peak of our civilization. Mm. Um, and of course, they had, you know, it, it's an eye opener in so many respects. Uh, Mail deliveries in some places were six times a day. Um, if you were in a town or a, a city, messengers on every street. So quicker than email in some respects, you could not only send the message, but you could tell the courier to wait for a reply and bring the reply back. And so they were absolutely uh, interconnected in the same way, but in a human way. Mm. And it was just it fascinates me, but it's got the length to really, to really suck you in, and it's it's a curious book. Casanova, I think they, the historical researchers have gone. This is the gist of it is is true. They can they certainly can place him. They don't think he's making too much of it up. If he's making anything up, he's boasting a little bit about his conquests and that. But they can place him at all these places at around the time that he writes of them. So he was in Paris, he was in Vienna. Um, he was, you know, he was instrumental in starting the first lottery in France to help fund uh, the palace. And he was in Amsterdam, The Hague, 
all these amazing places, of course, in Venice. And it's just a great tour of those centuries and much, much more modern than than we think things were at those times, you know. I think I'm going to have Is to that get too my much, hands on that. that. Too much information. No. I've given you the whole book. I know, but I now, now I'm desperate to read it. Get the Arthur Machen translation. It's awesome. And there's this is just a small press has put these up, seven volumes. But, God, it's such a glorious odyssey. And, uh, you yeah, know, it will make you nostalgic for nostalgic for uh, the 1750s. <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably let you go. Um, before I do, do you want to tell us where we can go and grab your books, especially your new one, Big Snake, Little Snake? I just thought it was wonderful, as all your writing is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, looking at it. Thank you for looking at it. Yes, change your luck with Big Snake, Little Snake. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to get it. Get it in Australia. It must be there. It is there. It is. It's available pretty much everywhere here, which is great. Yeah. Have you got bookshop.org? We do. We have bookshop.org and all of the other massive places out there as well. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Yeah, there are some excellent, excellent uh, actual physical bookshops, so do that. Better read than dead. It's a good one. Yeah, that's a hell of a, that's a, hell of a bookshop. Well, go down there and say hi to everyone. And you've got a website as well, don't you? There's a website, yeah. It's... it's uh, um, it's got some stuff on there. Not a hell of a lot happens, but when it does, I try and make it uh, significant. But do stop by at any time. Um, I'm not on social media, uh, just having written a book that kicks it in the face. <laughs> uh, however, I reserve the right, you know. If they get the algorithm straightened out, then then um, I, I might go there in future. But otherwise, no, I'm here alive and well and uh, working on the next thing. Uh, I hope to see you all in between of all that. Let's be lucky. Fuck it. The world's going to shit. We need to be lucky and we need to be positive and fruitful. That's right. And read lots of great books like yours. I can't wait to read your next one. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Well, I'll send it to you direct as well. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you for this. Thanks again to DBC Pierre. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode very soon. 